following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 6, familiar miracle of Jesus, two of them, in fact, side by side. You might wonder about looking at both of these miracles, but I want you to see them side by side as works of God's power through Jesus Christ. So listen as I read John 6, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. That's about, we understand, about nine months' wages for a working man. 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. The men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's holy word, inspired in every part, true in every possible way. I'm sure we could all sit down and make lists of things that appear to be truly impossible. No matter what happens with climate change, you're never going to see the sun rising in the west and setting in the east. 
nor will you ever see the force of gravity somehow fail to work. I might even venture to put alongside those things you'll never see our current president of the United States in his retirement signing up to join the Republican Tea Party forces. Just not likely to happen in the extreme. And I think that many of you could have your own lists of personal impossibilities. You're living with something, dealing with something in your life. Maybe it's a problem that's settled in for you for a long time, an illness or, or an economic problem, a career problem, a marital problem. And you've said, it's just impossible to me that this is ever going to really change. Impossible that my marriage would become really happy and flourishing. Impossible that I would ever find a great and satisfying job that really used my skills and brought me economic security. Or maybe impossible that you would conquer some destructive habit that you seem to keep going back to and back to despite every effort to the contrary. And there are many of us that have words in our lives that we use either privately or even to others when we say, I can't it won't work, it's out of the question. We're listing our impossibilities. But when I study Jesus Christ in the Gospels, the time he was on earth, it seemed to me you can make a case to say that almost everything he ever did flew directly in the face of impossibility. He was always doing things that men were marveling over. They just couldn't believe it. He made wine out of well water. He raised uh, the dead up to live again. He made blind people see. He died his own horrible death and rose from the grave. He started his church with uneducated fishermen and put in large responsibility over his apostles a man, Saul of Tarsus, who at one time had hated nothing more than Christians. The word impossible was not in Jesus' vocabulary. This miracle of feeding the 5,000 is one I'm sure we all feel we know about. We've read about it, heard about it in Sunday school. It's the only miracle, by the way, that's told in all four Gospels except for Jesus' own resurrection. So the Gospel writers thought it was quite important and significant. Very public. Hundreds and thousands of people witnessed it, and yet you always wonder what they really did witness or what they really understood. But as it is presented, you can only draw the conclusion that it is a supernatural act of God, the power of God working through Christ. I hope you won't insult our intelligence by trying to stand and tell us that this is what some liberal critics have said. Oh, well, Uh, no, this wasn't really the making of bread where there wasn't. You see, what was really going on here was a young boy shared his lunch, and that so inspired everybody who's looking on. They actually all had food along with them, but they were reluctant to get it out until they saw a little boy sharing, and then they all shared. Nonsense. It teaches no such thing. Jesus, by the power of God the Creator, made food where there was not food. This was a wonderful and amazing thing here. And he's going to discourse about it in the following portions of the chapter, what we call the bread of life discourse that I hope to get to in in a week or so. 
But today I just wanted to pull out the two miracles themselves, set them side by side, and have you see God's power working through an almighty Savior, God the Son, doing works of great wonder and divine power. First, to supply a simple human need of hunger, and secondly, to bring rescue and bring security to a dangerous or difficult situation. The first short point I have for you today is to have you look here at the disciples of Jesus facing an impossible need. Now, we believe the scene, if you can picture in your mind at all, you've ever seen a Bible map of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, the fact that it's called the Sea of Tiberias here in uh, verse 1 is interesting because that name was not used for the Sea of Galilee until at least about 50 A.D. or afterward. And it's one little tiny clue that tells us that John is probably the last written of the Gospels because that name would not have been in currency at the earlier time when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. But here they are in the upper part of the lake, and they go from Capernaum in the more or less northeast area over to an isolated area in the northwest. They're in retreat. This was, I think, an intent of spiritual retreat for Jesus and his disciples, to just get away from the pressures of the crowd. People can wear you out. If you do anything that deals closely with people and their needs and their brokenness and their diseases, you know that just as a workman, you know, using a sledgehammer all day or a pile driver or something gets tired in his body, you get tired working with people all the time. And Jesus went apart with his disciples here seeking retreat, but it wasn't to be had. People just were ready to follow wherever he went. How they got the word to one another is hard to say, but they literally just flocked to come wherever they knew that he was, looking for healing miracles and wonders to be done. And so this need is presented. Now, one of the things I should say to you is this was not a need that Jesus was any, under any obligation to have to meet. He didn't invite this crowd to come. In fact, they were really there almost against his invitation. And the fact that they came there without food supplies was not Jesus' blame in any way. Had he just said, all right, we're done teaching for the morning. You now may all be dismissed while I and my disciples go over here. Nobody could have blamed him at all. But he looked at them and saw a multitude of people and the other Gospels, Mark 6, for example, says he looked on them as sheep without a shepherd and had compassion. And he saw what to men was an impossibility. And he wanted to test the faith of his disciples. So he posed it to them and said, what should we do for these people? How might we feed people like this? Now, some of you may work in a restaurant or banquet or catering industries, and you have some idea. The large job it is to, let's say, have a a wedding banquet, a wedding reception for 300 people. That's huge. It takes all kinds of planning and purchasing and figuring out, you know, how to cook and what to cook at what time so all the dishes are done at the right time and served when they're hot and everything else. You know if you work in that industry, it takes out an enormous amount of planning to serve half a thousand people, let alone 5,000, let alone the probability that counting only the heads of households at 5,000, we're looking here at probably 15 or maybe 20,000 people. 
Enough to fill a minor league baseball stadium easily. Think of that. Even to give each of them a hot dog would take some work. And the disciples immediately see this. And here's one of them, Philip, pulling out his calculator. You know, he draws up the app, uh, the spreadsheet, and he says, time for a feasibility study. 15,000 people times how much food, how much would that cost? He's right on it. And his feasibility study says, cannot be done. Jesus, what are you talking about? It's ridiculous. We would have had to plan for a week and get enough money from a workman's salary for most of a year available to, to be able to serve a small lunch like this if everybody just got a little. Well, thank you, Philip. You know, we always need the Phillips who tell us about how things won't work because they keep us in bounds and maybe keep the dreamers among us from going to excess. But Jesus wasn't satisfied with that, and, and Andrew spoke up, and he does a little bit better, at least. In verse 8, we see him responding, and Andrew at least was willing to say, well, you know, his was still kind of an impossibility message, but at least it was willing to look around and say, is there anything available? And here was this boy. Now, the text says barley loaves, and you probably picture a loaf of bread. You should think roll or biscuit, okay? They were small. This was a boy's lunch and a couple of dried fish. Uh, Barley's the cheapest grain to buy, so this was a poor man's meal, and a young boy would have consumed this and probably been enough for him, but not for others. And Andrew, I don't know whether the boy offered and said, could Jesus use my lunch? I'm not sure what the transaction was. I think he was, Andrew was just pointing and saying, well, here's a boy with a lunch. That's the only food I see anywhere around here, and it certainly isn't going to touch the need. Well, thank you, Andrew, that you at least were willing to think in terms of resources available. You know, most of the time, we allow our circumstances our lack of faith, our defeatist attitudes to tell us there are no resources to do the big things that maybe need to happen in our lives, the changes that need to come, and we get depressed and the tempter comes and insinuates to our minds, who are you kidding? What in the world do you have to offer up against this enormous need to to change your thought life, to stop indulging your pornography habit, to uh, change your, your economic life so your family could have a better standard of provision, to stop behaving the way you are in that broken relationship. You just don't have the ability. You've tried and it hasn't worked and there isn't anything that can be done. And the enemy of God loves to keep a Christian in that position. There's nothing. There's no resource. There's nothing that can be done. And then we think of societal things beyond our personal scope. We think of how we as people of God in this society today have, have come to be in such a place of dismay, and it seems like it's coming upon us worse all the time in our anti-God, anti-Christ culture. You know, we see well-funded lobbies pushing anything goes in the Department of Sexuality, and suddenly it just seems like the earth is moving under our feet. We say, where have standards gone? How can we ever oppose this? Could we ever get back to where we once were? 
It just seems like there's no answer. There's, there's no provision. There's no strength that we have to change things. All we've got in our moral and spiritual lunches are some sardines and stale biscuits and they don't feel like they're very adequate up against what the world throws at us and the situations we face. And so because we seem to have so little to offer, quite often even the little that we do have, our voices, our wills, our, our relationships linking arms with other believers in fellowship and in spoken strength of voice and position, even that seems so puny that we don't offer it to the Lord. And we sit back in glum silence thinking we can do nothing. Well, my second point here, once we face this impossible need, is stated as a question. And the question is, what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? And you might recognize that that question comes from the book of Exodus with Moses. Exodus 4, here was Moses called to go and do an absolutely impossible, absurd thing. Moses, I know you've been out in the desert for 40 years after your life in Egypt. I know you've had a quiet, peaceful life. You've withdrawn from world affairs. Now it's time for you to take up a task, says the Lord. Go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. I don't know if we even begin to appreciate what what that command was and why Moses whined and bargained and his mind was just swimming with this call from God. It'd be like God saying to me, Rogers, go on down to Washington, D.C., march into the Supreme Court, tell them all that they're wrong and you expect them to change. It's not going to happen. I'd say, Lord, not me. At least call a lawyer for that one. And here's Moses saying, I can't do it. It's just far beyond me. It's impossible, Lord. And God says, what's in your hand? What was in his hand? A wooden staff that a shepherd used to move sheep about. A plain old ordinary instrument, nothing fancy about it. Didn't have any, any nice carving on it probably. It was just a piece of wood. And the Lord said, Moses, take that staff. I'm going to turn it into the rod of my power, and you are going to see me do works that you will not believe. As he did miracle-working power in Egypt, and you know what happened. Pharaoh eventually, not willingly, but eventually let his people go. I think the Lord tells us not to demean any little thing we might possibly be able to do. Can we pray? Can we give? Can we speak up? Can we write a letter? Can we unite in circles of encouragement over issues with other Christians? Can we take some talent and apply it here in this direction to help some other person who's struggling worse than we are? Things that might appear in our lives to be only stale biscuits and sardines can be applied when given to the Lord. And we ask the Lord, use the little things that I do have, Lord. I'm willing to give them to you and see what you will do. James Boyce comments on this text. He says this, resources that are insufficient in the hands of an insignificant person become both sufficient 
and significant when given over to Jesus Christ. Elizabeth Elliot, who you may well know for having gone through great suffering herself, great loss in her life, wrote this about this similar subject. She said, if the only thing you have to offer God is a broken heart, offer him that. She said, in my times of grief, the recognition that even this grief is an acceptable sacrifice has been a great strength to me. Realizing that I have nothing means that nothing I am will be refused by Christ. I can offer him my emptiness, in other words. In fact, that might be the most important thing that you could offer the Lord, is coming before him and say, Lord, I've tried, I've tried, I've drawn on every resource I have. I don't seem to be making a dent in this huge problem in my life. Here I am, helpless. I offer myself to you. Can you somehow use an empty person, a broken person? The question is, do we have an almighty Lord on our side? Or are we trying to be almighty and all-sufficient? If we do have an almighty Lord, then we will throw ourselves upon God, our Savior, in audacious faith. Not faith that necessarily knows what he's about to do or will do, but knowing that if anybody's going to do something, it will be him and not us. And it will be the little resources that we put in his hands that he will use. The confession of our own emptiness might be the greatest place that many of us can begin. Lord, I'm inadequate. Lord, I'm overwhelmed. I bow before you. I ask you, my powerful God, to do what you will do in this situation. We see thirdly then Christ's almighty power at work here in both of these miracles. The First the miracle to supply everyday need with food and then the miracle to bring rescue from distress and even danger. What has always fascinated me, as common as people hear about and think about the feeding of the 5,000, what has always interested me so much is how this miracle happened. And it happened in such a way that you really can't explain. You know, you want to think, well, donkey carts pulled up, piled high with bread, you know, 12 donkey carts, boom, there it is, just start handing out the big loaves, boys. No. At no time that I can see was there any kind of a mound or, you know, big supply of bread and fish from which Jesus picked it up. The way the miracle is described is Jesus just kept handing it out and his hands never became empty. And even the disciples that were taking it from his hands must have said, what? what's happening? You know, where's the abracadabra moment here? Where's the brass band, you know, the fire from heaven or something? No, it was very quiet. If you'd been sitting in the fifth or sixth row of that big, great big crowd, I think you might not have even understood what was going on. Although at the end it says people realized they had seen a miracle of some kind of they certainly wondered where all that food came from. I'm not sure that very many of them really understood what had just been done. Bread had been created. Fish had been created before their eyes as Jesus handed it out. And the emphasis comes in verses 11 to 13 as it tells us how much was left as the way of measuring what had been done. 
I can't tell you how big those baskets were, but even if they were relatively small baskets, that boy's lunch didn't fill a basket. And if I imagine the baskets were probably pretty good size. How many almost hundred times over were the leftovers from what we began with? What is that telling us? Our God is a God who fulfills a, a promise like Jeremiah thirty-one fourteen that says, my people will be satisfied with my bounty. I love Jesus' description. I've always thought what a wonderful descriptive phrase he gave in Luke 6, 38 when he was speaking about the, the generosity of God in his gifts. And he said that God gives, quote, full measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over and poured into the lap. I remember on my grandfather's farm seeing wheat being harvested and the combine shoot with the wheat just, you know, big heavy stream of wheat just shooting out into the wagon. And I, I picture, you know, someone sitting there with that wheat shooting into their lap, bushels of it. Jesus said, that's the way God gives. He's never stingy. And then in this second miracle, quickly, as you put it alongside here, they're caught in a storm. Remember, these are experienced fishermen. They know how to handle a boat. They were probably going over to Capernaum to get some more supplies, I suspect. Thought they'd do that overnight while Jesus was resting. And he appears. He's not in the boat. He did not come with them. He appears walking upon the water. And the storm is calmed, and they reach their destination. An act of power, divine power. That's what these two miracles side by side tell us. Our Christ, our Savior, is the same almighty God, the creator. The power of God is evident in him. He he has this power that he can mend, he can build up, he can heal, he can strengthen, he can feed, he can rescue so we can say, with, with our God, all things are possible. Now, there, there's a warning, I think, that needs to be given quickly because, you know, the health and wealth gospel loves this, this section and would say, ah, okay, now, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you that you can come to your God and you can ask him for whatever you need and he'll pour it out upon you if, you know, you're, you're in economic trouble and you tell God you need $100,000, okay, no, just go ask him and God will do it. I don't see anything like that here. The key thing that I believe you have to see here is that what Jesus did in both cases, in both miracles, were things that were not expected, that nobody was looking for, nobody was asking for. Nobody said, Lord, make enough food to feed all these people. Nobody said, Lord, calm this storm down. Get us out of this danger. But he came with a powerful solution to the need. According to his wisdom, his timing, it wasn't what somebody asked for. And in fact, had they asked for it, had they prayed for it, he might have very well done something that was quite the opposite of what they asked for. But the key issue is the word impossible is not in the vocabulary of Jesus Christ. He's here to do great things in the name of our God by God's own power. And I challenge you today to take a hard and honest look at whatever the challenge could be that you face. It might be a family challenge. 
You know, sometimes a day like Mother's Day brings out real strife, real difficulty in a family. It shows you why communication is not happening well in your family. What's that all about? Is that something you can bring to the Lord and confess to Him and say, Lord, I've tried and I've tried. I must not have done the right things. I confess my inadequacy. I bow before you. Lord, will you work in your power and in unexpected ways in my family? Maybe in your career, maybe in your finances. I don't know where the need is for you that you would say, this is the impossible thing. But will you pray in Ephesians 3.20 prayer? A prayer that doesn't really know exactly what it's asking for, but comes and prays according to Ephesians 3.20, asking God to work exceeding abundantly above all that I ask or imagine. You see, that's the God who's at work here. The God who did things that nobody ever thought were possible at all. And you know, those disciples, although the text doesn't say they were afraid of the storm, I look in vain to find that in this passage. It it was rough. It was strong. They weren't making very good progress. And you say it does say they were frightened, notice, in verse 19. But what were they frightened of? They were actually frightened when they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And any fear they might have had of of circumstances, of a problem, of an impossible dilemma, how to get out of this, was forgotten by that fear which is holy, worshipful awe of God himself appearing in the midst of a crisis. Fear of him displaces every lesser kind of anxiety. And it's a positive fear that leads us to worship and trust. In God's time and by trusting in the active power of an almighty Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray you may discover along the lines of Philippians chapter 4 that my God will supply all my need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, may your people who are in Christ Jesus today be ready to see the things that look impossible in their lives, ready to acknowledge their bankruptcy to know how to deal with them alone, ready to cast themselves upon your almighty strength, and ready to look and find that you will do things that we do not expect in ways we never imagined. Thank you for being such a powerful God and that your power is focused on us through Jesus our Lord. Amen.